Good morning, church. If you have your copy of God's Word, uh, please turn with me now to Matthew chapter 5. We continue this morning in our Sermon on the Mount series. Uh, We're going to be in verses 13 through 16. That's page 810 in your pew Bibles. For the brief moment we have together this morning, I would like to speak from this text on the topic, Flavor Flav. (laughs) Flavor Flav. Somebody say amen. Amen. All right, let us pray. Father, Lord, we thank you again for the opportunity to be in your presence this morning. Lord, even as I have sought your face on behalf of your people throughout this week, I do it again now and ask, O Lord, that we might know what is the height and the length, the depth and the breadth of the love of Christ and the knowledge of God. Lord, even as we put our faces into the text this morning, let us come away radiant with your glory as we shine your light in our surrounding world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Many of you know that today we are confronted with a societal landscape that is increasingly antagonistic, hostile, and inimical to Christianity, wherein we bemoan a post-Christian society and where some have argued for strategic withdrawal of Christians and with various options for how Christians should engage society. The text before us this morning offers not yet another option for us to consider, Rather, it answers the aforementioned question with another question, that paradigmatic question which every church has to, at some point, ask itself. There's a question that our rector, Taylor Bodo, has raised repeatedly in our staff meetings since last year, and it is this. If incarnation shuts its doors today, what would the community around us even know? Would they know that we were missing a month later? Is it that we are a church because we come here on Sunday mornings and our neighbors see us coming and going, but aside from that, we have no real lasting impact in our community? Are we an effective or an ineffective witness? Does it matter if we come to church if we are never the church when we leave the church. The thrust of the text before us this morning is that our Lord, the one who founded the church, the one who started the church, he has a higher, heavier, holier agenda for the church. And it is this. He wants us to be a visible, active, engaged church. When we look at who we are and whose we are, we ought to let the light shine so that the world may know that there is a God who rules and reigns in heaven. And this is what Jesus is getting at in this text. When we get to Matthew chapter 5, verse 13, Jesus is turning the corner on the Sermon on the Mount. And for the last 12 verses, he's preached some rather remarkable, if not strange, admonitions to the gathered assembly. He he says stuff like, blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Blessed are you who mourn, for you would be comforted. Blessed are you who are persecuted. And now, on the heels of the ninth beatitude, when he says, blessed are you when you are persecuted, Jesus pauses to speak a word of ordination. And you do know that the whole church is ordained, right? Not in the sense of pastoral ministry, but it is that we are set apart from the world. And this is the language of salt and light. And Jesus says to his disciples a word about their identity. And notice here that the language of salt and light is less so about what we do and more about who we are. It is to say that everything a Christian says and does, because she or he is a Christian, is an outward and visible manifestation of Christian faith. The emphasis is on visibility and distinction. That is, the Christian community is to be a city on a hill, not a village in the valley. That our way of life should be visible to all while serving as a contrast and a guide. The goal then of being salt and light is witness and influence, not prominence and praise, as Matthew chapter 6 later warns. In fact, given that it comes right after the ninth beatitude, the text almost certainly carries this implicit warning that living visibly as a Christian in the culture will often result in rejection and mistreatment, especially if our visibility is out of step with the values of the world, rather than a, a kind of visible pandering to the values of the world. More of that in a moment. Hear now how Jesus describes our identity as a community of believers. He says, you are the salt of the earth. Now, the first word of our English text is a two-person plural identifying marker. In the original language, subjects were generally understood in their pronominal form. So basically, in one sense, people speaking didn't have to say you because you was generally understood. All right, y'all tracking with me? But the fact that Jesus starts this verse by saying you and puts it in the place of emphasis, it's a measure of grace that we shouldn't run over too quickly. What Jesus says here is that you folks are the salt of the earth. In other words, I've entrusted you with something so significant, so special that there are no other groups on this earth quite like you. Jesus says you all are the salt of the earth. And notice what Jesus did not say. He didn't say you ought to be the salt of the earth. He didn't say you should be the salt of the earth. He didn't even say that the world has other salt options. Like you guys over here are lavender salt, you know, where you take your bath in. And then you guys over here are table salt that you put in your food. Friends, the church is not a brand of salt among other brands of salt. The church is the salt of the earth. The words of Jesus here, it is a striking reminder of the exclusive role that the church plays in God's redeeming enterprise. We are the salt. Nobody can beat us at being salt. And you know what salt does? Let's, let's lean into the text a bit more here. Go back with me into the world of the text where there were no Frigidaires or Kenmores or Whirlpools. 
So how did you keep the meat from expiring too quickly? Salt. You press the salt into the meat to slow down the process of decay. It doesn't do away with it, but it slows the meat down from dying. Believers, then, are preservatives in the world. We slow down the advancement of moral and spiritual decay. Psalm 14.3 says, all have turned away. All have become corrupt. There is none good. No, not one. And it is in this fallen world and evil generation that believers are called to preserve truth and goodness. Salt is also a flavor enhancer. In the same way that salt enhances the flavor of the food, it seasons, followers of Christ stand out when we enhance the flavor of life in this world. Where there's strife, we're to be peacemakers. Where there's sorrow, we're to be comforters. Where there's hatred, we're to exemplify the love of God in Christ, returning good for evil. But what good is salt if it never comes in contact with the food? Salt can be a centimeter away from the food, but if it never comes in contact, it doesn't do any good. It doesn't wake up the flavor of the food. There are people around you whose lives are so bland, so tasteless, and you've got the salt. Friends, it should matter that you live in the neighborhood that you live, that you sit in the office that you sit in, that you're in the section you are at school. Do your coworkers, do do your neighbors, your classmates even know you're a Christian? Has it made a difference in the neighborhood that you live in? Has it blessed the lives of your coworkers or your classmates that you are in that setting? Or are you still salt in the shaker? What Jesus is urging upon us is that our lives need to make a difference. Needs to have an impact. Indeed, it needs to redefine the destinies of those who are around us. Because we have the answers to life's questions. We have the hope against life's despair. We have the joy that answers life's sorrows. The Christian life is the spice of life in the bland and tasteless world. But if it just stays on the inside, then what good are we? Friends, here's what I'm trying to say to you. Salt is meant to penetrate the food. It wakes up the food that would otherwise be bland. And the church's mission is to penetrate the world and to wake up the world. The world without the church is a more rapidly decaying society. It is also a tasteless place. And friends, if you and I don't feel the force of what Jesus is saying in this text, we'll be comfortable coming to church on Sunday, raising our hands, singing our songs, greeting one another, but won't change a God darn thing when church is over. And if there's anybody in the world who ought to be changing the world, it is the church. You do know that it was first Christians who invented hospitals, right? They funded hospitals and made hospitals. Quarantining to keep pandemics at bay, that was the church. Christians developed that during the bubonic plague. The great scientists of Western civilization, Christians, from Isaac Newton to Robert Boyle to Francis Baker to Johann Kepler. We wouldn't have schools if it wasn't for the church. 
We would not have orphanages if it wasn't for the church. We wouldn't have counseling centers if it wasn't for the church. The thing I'm worried about today is, what has the church done lately? What schools are we starting? What, what boys and girls are we educating? What lost people are we counseling? Where is the hope of the world to come from? We are the salt of the earth. But notice how Jesus says it. He moves from the indicative to the imperative, from the evangel to the ethic. He, he, first, he first tells them who they are. This is the distinction between Christianity and any other would-be religion. Other religions will try to tell you to become something that you're not. But faith in Jesus says become something that you are. This is who he's made you to be. Jesus says, in essence, become who you already are. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, how can it get it back? Listen to me now. There's no answer to that. I'm no scientist, but when I was preparing the sermon, I looked up some facts about salt. So I read on Wikipedia, the repository of all knowledge. <laughs> all the students are clapping. Yes. That's my first research starting point. So I looked it up. And, you know, most scientists say that salt can't lose its saltiness. It is what it is. It does what it does, right? Sodium chloride, it's a pretty stable compound. So the question becomes, what is, what, what's Jesus talking about here? Well, in this ancient Near Eastern context, they didn't have pure salt as we did today. In the world of Matthew 5, salt was collected from salt marshes, where different pieces of stone and rock were combined with the salt. And because it kind of lived with salt, the stone would become salty. But if it stayed in the sun and in the human hair too much, it would, the salt would leach out from it, okay? So after a while, it looked like salt, it felt like salt, but it wasn't salty at all. And this is what Jesus is getting at, because some of us can tell that there are churches that look like churches, that sound like churches, but they've lost their salt a long time ago. There are Christians. You look like one. You talk like one. You come to church. But when we look at the evidence of your life, there's no salt inside of you. Because you're no different from the world. You spend the way you spend your money, the way you spend your time. Your politics, your hobbies, your sacred cows are no different from an unbeliever. Yet the text impresses upon us this contrast, this distinction, the difference between the Christian and the world that is to be preserved and enhanced. Meaning that any choice on our part that blurs the distinction between us and the rest of the world is a step in the wrong direction. We are pro-woman and pro-life. We are pro-compassion and pro-holiness. We are pro-love and pro-truth. We pursue justice rooted in and motivated by God's righteousness rather than endorsing unrighteousness in the name of an insufficient justice. 
In other words, we are pro-social justice and pro-moral order. But it is when we try to make God's truth fit your truth, when we try to make cultural orthodoxy to fit God's theology, when we try to confuse the creation's view of hashtag blessed with the creator's defined standard for true human flourishing, that's when we lose our saltiness, y'all. And this is what Pastor John was talking about last week when he said that true flourishing, true blessedness, true life in the kingdom of God is demonstrably different than the world around us. In other words, the need of every human soul, the gaping hole in every human heart is met not by holding on to the ball of earthly ephemeral things, but by holding fast to God who comforts us in our mourning, who satisfies us in our hunger and thirst, who turns former slaves into sons of God and makes us heirs to the kingdom of heaven. Assault, we are necessarily different. And we can't be afraid to be different. Otherwise, we lose our saltiness. In Luke chapter 14, verse 34, we find a reference again to this metaphor of salt, and this time in the context of obedient discipleship to Jesus Christ. The loss of saltiness, the text implies, is failure of the Christian to daily take up the cross and follow Christ. Friends, it is only by remaining focused on Jesus and being obedient to him that we can expect to maintain our saltiness. And I thank God. I thank God especially that our young ones have been an example of what it means to be salty in this world as they add flavor and preserve the good. Indeed, the reason we are seeing the growth in our church, it first started with our youth, with constellation and call to belong, right? These kids tasted and saw that the Lord is good. And then they started to invite their friends. And then their friends started to invite their, fa- their parents. And then the Lord was adding to our numbers daily. I see them now living countercultural lives. I see Jack Bump serving in our hospitality ministry while at home serving and loving his unbelieving grandmother. All that he might win her to Christ through his love and care. I see Benjamin Hall working hard, so hard at school. He doesn't give up, and he keeps working hard that he might be a gospel witness at Leon High. I see Dante. I see this, this young brother doing our lessons and carols. He was sad, and I went up to him and asked, what's wrong, Dante? And he said, kids at school are making fun of me. And I asked, why, why are they making fun of you, man? He said, because I love Jesus. And I try to tell them about him. Oh, that this brother, this young brother has a gospel witness. And I told him, blessed are you, Dante, when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on Jesus' account. Rejoice, Dante. Rejoice and be glad for your great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Our young ones are showing us what it means to be salt and light in a crooked and twisted generation. Indeed, the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Lest I keep you too long, Jesus also says, 
in addition to you being the salt, he turns around and says, you are the light. And listen to, listen to how he says it here in verse 14. He says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. The first you are salt is written the same way you are light. But the emphasis I want to draw upon is different here. He speaks of our communal function as much as he does our individual impact. That collectively, we are the light. Now, you're a light wherever you go and wherever you are, and you don't have to generate a source within you. It is given to you. And that makes you distinct as well. Because the way you do business as a Christian business owner is different from the way an unbeliever does it. The way you go about your work and study as a student is different from the way your unbelieving classmates do it. The way you serve your patients as a doctor is different. How you invest your money, what you invest your money in, how you spend your time, what you spend your time on is different. And it stands in contrast as light does in the darkness. They, this is good and great and should live your life in said manner. But consider also, consider also when the whole lot of us join up, join our light together in community. When 50 of us show up at the same time and we roll deep into some spaces. When we go to the city commission meeting and the whole church speaks up for justice and truth. When we go to the school board meeting and cry out for what's important and demand that the kids in our neighborhoods get the resources for a robust education. When we don't leave our institutions to its own whims and wishes, but when we all show up, the darkness has got to back up because the light has shown up. And what Jesus is saying that not only you individually, but we all are light collectively shining forth Jesus. And this is a word of encouragement on the heels of the word of warning. The word of encouragement is that you are the salt. The warning is don't lose your saltiness. And then he says you are the light that's a word of promise that our effectiveness in our Christian discipleship doesn't start with us, but rather it begins and ends with Jesus. Because Jesus Christ is the light of the world. And it is as we follow him that we have the light of life. He is the sun that we reflect. It is the radiance of his glory that shines in and through us. What makes us effective as light is the source that gives us light. Because if Jesus stops coming to this church, we're in trouble, y'all. Because what makes us effective as a church in the pastor, what makes us effective as a church is not your pedigree. Nobody cares how many degrees you got, whether you're a gator or a gnoll or a big red bear like me. What makes us effective is not our money. And listen here, you should give it. And you should give it generously and regularly and consistently and abundantly and over and over again so we could do the work. But that isn't what makes us effective. Can you imagine if the power of God fell in our city through this church? Can you imagine how lost people could come to know him? Can you imagine if little boys and little girls who are struggling in school would come to find hope through this church? 
Because that's what we need, y'all. We don't need more educated, more gifted, more financially resourced churches. We need churches that have the power of Jesus at work in their midst. Y'all ought to say an amen to that. Because you don't have to be the light. You got to let the light shine. Get out of the way and let Jesus shine before the world. And here's how it happened, and I'll be my seat. These old cities, these old cities were set on a hill. Jerusalem was on a hill because cities on a hill, they were hard to attack because you could see your enemy coming up, right? And you could more easily defend against an onslaught. Now, these cities also, especially ancient Jerusalem, had walls made out of limestone that gleamed in the sunlight. So even during the day, as the sun rose, it shined on the city and it lit up. But then at night, at night, they had these crevices in the walls and where you would put in lamps in the lampstands and the little candles, as it were, that sat on the stands and the amber glow of the fire would reverberate and ring off the walls and shine all around. So that even people who were riding their, car, their, their, their camels in the dark, in the valley, right, they could look up and see a city on a hill shining bright in a dark world. The future of the church hinges on how we let God use our light to light the city. The world is becoming an increasingly dark place. I mean, all you got to do is turn on the evening news and can see that. But there's only one agent that's going to push against that darkness, that's going to fight against that evil, and it is the church. And all I want to ask you this morning, friends, are you going to be the kind of church that lets your light shine? Are you going to be the salt that preserves the good and enhances the flavor of life? Are you going to be the kind of church that says, oh, the world is hungry, we'll feed them. There's nobody to visit these boys in jail, we'll go. These women are in crisis pregnancies and they have no hope and everybody's left them, but we'll stand with them. Or, or, Or are we going to be the kind of church that is content to just come here and raise our hands and clap our hands? and nod our heads in holy huddles and sanctified cliques. Look, I like clapping and worshiping with the best of them. I talk back to the preacher all the time. I love church. But beyond that, friends, we've got to be the church. And how does it work? We draw near to the vulnerable and the socially isolated. We protect and preserve families. We speak up for the marginalized. We give generously to the needy. We visit with the imprisoned. We feed the hungry and clothe the naked. And we share the reason for the hope we have in Jesus with those in darkness and despair. In other words, we let the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ shine through our good works. And when they see our good works, they actually start to glorify the Father. What a concept. That people would see you and know that God is real. That people would see you and know that Christ rules and reigns. That people will see you and know there is a God who loves them unconditionally and wants true flourishing for them. Beloved, That is the hope and the motivation of our good works. That the world will be filled 
with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters covers the sea. Oh, let us hasten the day as we commit to being salt and light in this world for the good of our neighbors and the glory of God. Amen. Let us pray. This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. Let it shine, let it shine. Let it shine. Sing it, church. This little light. This little light of mine. I'm gonna let it shine. Oh, this. I'm gonna let it shine. This little light of mine. 